Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back, everybody. I hope you're all having a great week and excited to finish up the psoriasiform papulosquamous disorders by discussing parapsoriasis today. Since this is a short topic, we will also discuss pityriasis rubra pilaris, also known as PRP, which has scaly plaques that help fit it into our psoriasiform papulosquamous differential. First, let's review our basic framework for a reaction pattern so we can burn this information into our brains. The five main reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobolus. There's absolutely crossover between these categories where one condition can fit into several of them, but this is at least a good place to start. Again, we break the first category of papulosquamous rashes into five subcategories. One, psoriasiform. Two, pityriasiform, which resembles pityriasis rosea. Three, lichenoid, resembling the prototype lichen planus. Four, annular or ring-like disorders such as tinea. In five, erythroderma, which has many causes, including psoriasis and pityriasis rubra pilaris, aka PRP, which we will discuss in the second half of this episode. Today we will finish our discussion of the first category, the papulosquamous psoriasiform rashes. We have already touched on psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, and mycosis fungoides, and today we will finish with parapsoriasis. Again, we'll throw in our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Alright, what is parapsoriasis? Simply put, it is an uncommon, chronic, idiopathic rash that mimics psoriasis. If you remember one sentence from this episode, remember this next one. Parapsoriasis is broken down into two categories, one being small plaque parapsoriasis, which has scaly patches less than 5 centimeters in diameter and no association with cutaneous lymphoma, and two being large plaque parapsoriasis, which has scaly patches greater than 5 centimeters and may progress to mycosis fungoides. Again, parapsoriasis is broken down into two categories. One, small plaque parapsoriasis, which has scaly patches less than 5 centimeters and no association with cutaneous lymphomas. And two, large plaque parapsoriasis, which has scaly patches greater than 5 centimeters and may progress to mycosis fungoides. All right, I may as well give you 50-50 odds so you actually have a chance. True or false? Small and large plaque parapsoriasis are actually composed of patches and not plaques. The answer is actually true. Parapsoriasis is actually made up of patches rather than plaques. Therefore, the term small and large plaque parapsoriasis is a misnomer. Boo. But anyways, both of these rashes tend to be non-paritic and are not indurated, unlike CTCL lesions which usually have some induration. Small and large plaque parapsoriasis is also treated with similar treatments to psoriasis, including topical corticosteroids, and various phototherapies, including narrowband UVB, which usually actually work better than the topical treatments. Take a break from dreaming about your avocado toast and triple kai berry antioxidant smoothie and tell me how a parasoriasis patient will present to my clinic.
First off, it's going to be on rare occasions. But when it does occur, parasoriasis most commonly affects middle-aged patients in their 40s, although it can be at any age. It occurs in all races and tends to affect males in a 3 to 1 ratio compared to females. Although its cause is unknown, biopsies consistently show a superficial infiltrate of CD4-positive T-cells. Some dermatologists lump parasoriasis into a group known as clonal dermatitis because entities in this group tend to have a clonal proliferation of T-cells and have been reported to progress to CTCL. Other clonal dermatitides include pityriasis lichenoides et varioliformis acuta, aka pleva, pityriasis lichenoides chronica, aka PLC, and lymphomatoid papulosis, aka LYP. It is very rare for pleva or PLC to progress to CTCL, whereas LYP progresses to another lymphoproliferative disorder such as anaplastic large cell lymphoma, Hodgkin disease, or CTCL in 10 to 20% of cases. So let's first talk small plaque parasoriasis a little more. As mentioned, it actually presents as numerous red patches less than 5 centimeters in diameter that are covered with a fine scale. They tend to wax and wane early on in their course and then will either A, resolve spontaneously or with treatment after several years, or B, be persistent. Although the small plaque parasoriasis lesions don't progress to MF on their own, they are similar to MF in that the lesions tend to favor the sun-protected sites, which is also called the bathing suit distribution. Why don't you use your dirty edematous fingers to write down the name of a variant of small plaque parasoriasis? Okay, so there is also a variant of small plaque parasoriasis called digitate dermatosis, which has long, finger-like patches along skin cleavage lines on the flanks. Although these digitate dermatosis plaques may be longer than 5 centimeters and even greater than 10 centimeters long, it is still considered a small plaque parasoriasis variant because of its very low risk of progression to MF. Then we have large plaque parasoriasis, which has a variable number of erythematous, scaly patches that are greater than 5 centimeters in diameter. Unlike small plaque parasoriasis, large plaque parasoriasis may progress to mycosis fungoides, with estimates that 10 to 35% of cases progress to MF over 6 to 10 years. Again, 10 to 35% of cases progress to MF over 6 to 10 years. It also has a variant which is known as retiform parasoriasis, which presents with widespread erythematous scaly patches in a net-like distribution. Unfortunately, nearly all of these rare retiform parasoriasis cases progress to mycosis fungoides. Okay, okay, okay. We have lumpers and splitters in dermatology. Lumpers are lazy and like to put similar disorders in one group. And splitters like to hear themselves talk and give everything a name. So tell me, what exactly is the difference between large plaque parasoriasis and mycosis fungoides, and why shouldn't I lump them? To put it simply, large plaque parasoriasis doesn't quite meet the histologic criteria to be diagnosed as mycosis fungoides, but even experts are still hashing out the criteria to make the diagnosis of MF. Parasoriasis does have some similar features to MF, though. Both small and large plaque parasoriasis have parakeratosis, which corresponds with the scale seen clinically. Both also feature mild acanthosis and spongiosis. Therefore, some consider parasoriasis to be a chronic spongiotic dermatitis. 
Parasoriasis also has a mild lymphocytic infiltrate at the dermoepidermal junction that is predominantly CD4 positive and may have T-cell clonality, especially in large plaque parasoriasis cases. Keep in mind that immunohistochemistry studies and clinical correlation are also very important to differentiate small and large plaque parasoriasis from mycosis fungoides. You can always listen back to the mycosis fungoides episode to go over some of these findings again. So that's what I got for you all for parasoriasis. I will save our summary of parasoriasis for the end of the episode and next move on to pityriasis rubra pilaris, which is commonly called PRP. All right now, you little pest. Who gets pityriasis rubra pilaris and what are the classic signs and symptoms? PRP is usually acquired, meaning it is not genetic, and has a bimodal onset in childhood and adolescence, and then a second peak in patients' early 50s. The characteristic rash of pityriasis rubra pilaris starts as erythema in scale of the scalp. Patients then develop red-brown follicular papules with a central keratotic plug that have a nutmeg-grater appearance, which you can Google a picture of. These follicular papules affect the head, neck, trunk, and extensor extremities and dorsal fingers, and they eventually coalesce into scaly plaques with a salmon to red-orange color that is diffuse and symmetric, even to the point of erythroderma. There are two unique things about the plaques of PRP, one being their unique salmon to red-orange color, and two being that they have islands of sparing, meaning that there are often little islands of normal skin mixed into these confluent plaques. It's interesting that despite the extensive erythroderma that PRP patients can develop, they usually don't have pruritus or a lot of symptoms to go with it. Looks like you only reached the second page on pityriasis ruba pilaris. I guess that makes you a book larvae as opposed to the bookworm you fancy yourself as. No matter, what other clinical findings for pityriasis ruba pilaris do patients get, besides the scalp erythema, nutmeg grater follicular papules, and salmon orange plaques with islands of sparing? Patients can also have a red-orange waxy keratoderma, with keratoderma meaning that they have thick hyperkeratosis of the skin that appears as excessive scaliness and fissuring of the palms and soles. When this occurs on the feet, some people refer to it as PRP sandals. Like psoriasis, PRP patients can also have nail changes such as thickened yellow brittle nails, but unlike psoriasis, PRP patients rarely get pitting in their nails, so that's a nice clinical pearl to remember. We will go over more of these clinical pearls in the erythroderma episode as well. So let's pretend you are again in clinic with Dr. Grumpy Pants. You're eating lunch, he's shredding some cheese onto his salad when he says, Ah, this shredder always makes me think of my first pityriasis ruba pilaris patient and their nutmeg greater follicular papules that they had. Can you tell me the six types of pityriasis ruba pilaris, or have you been too busy planning on moving back in with your parents? You swallow your pride and say, Well, actually, I don't know off the top of my head, but I will read about them tonight and tell you more about it tomorrow. I'll read about it tonight. Never saved anyone in an emergency department, so why do you think it an appropriate excuse now? Find the answer. The patient is suffering. So, what are the six types of PRP? 
They are categorized according to two factors. One, the age of the patient with either juvenile or adult onset, and two, the clinical findings. Type 1 pityriasis rubra pilaris is the classic adult type that we just described, which has a rapid onset of classic findings and a good prognosis, with 80% of cases resolving over three years. And yes, I just said a good prognosis even though it usually takes months to several years or more to resolve. This classic adult PRP type 1 is the most common type, comprising 55% of cases. Next, there's type 2 PRP, which is the atypical adult PRP comprising just 5% of cases. It has a slower onset and presents with areas of eczematous dermatitis, ichthyosis-like scaly lesions on the legs with keratoderma, and occasionally alopecia. It usually has a much more chronic course compared to type 1 PRP. Then there's type 3 PRP, which is the classic juvenile form and comprises 10% of all PRP cases. It basically has the same clinical findings in timeline for resolution as type 1, but presents in kids less than 2 years old or in adolescence. Then we have type 4 PRP, which is the only localized form of PRP and is the most common form of PRP in kids, making up 25% of all PRP cases. We also call type 4 PRP the circumscribed juvenile form, since these kids typically present with follicular papules and erythematous plaques on the extensor fingers, elbows, and knees. Again, remember type 4 PRP makes up 25% of all cases, is localized, and is the most common type in kids. Go on. At this rate, I'll need a shot of espresso by the time you get to type 6. Next, we have type 5 PRP, which is the atypical juvenile form occurring in 5% of all cases. It is analogous to the chronic type 2 PRP seen in adults in that they are each 5% of cases and have a chronic course. But, these kids can have more classic PRP findings with follicular hyperkeratosis and erythema, along with a unique feature of scleroderma-like tightening of the skin on the hands and feet. Of all the PRP types, type 5 is most likely to have a genetic component. And lastly, we have the newly described type 6 PRP that is less than 1% of cases, has overlap with type 1 PRP, and is associated with HIV along with follicular spines, acne conglobata, and hydradenitis superativa. It's worth mentioning that we don't really know exactly what causes any of these types of pityriasis rubra pilaris, but keep in mind that there have been reports of PRP starting around the same time as infections like HIV, malignancy, hypothyroidism, and even myasthenia gravis. So you're back at clinic the next day with Dr. G. You have a great morning of clinic, and you're sitting in the break room while he's playing checkers on his phone when he says, You know, this checkerboard reminds me a lot of the histologic findings of my pityriasis ruba pilaris patients, too. Did you actually read about the six types of pityriasis ruba pilaris, or did your Himalayan salt bath put you to sleep too early last night? You tell him, yes, there are six types of PRP worth knowing, which are categorized based on juvenile or adult onset and the clinical findings. Type 1 is the classic adult pityriasis rubra pilaris, making up 55% of cases and presents with a more rapid onset of classic PRP findings. These findings include erythema and scale of the scalp, nutmeg grater follicular keratotic papules that coalesce into large red-orange scaly plaques with islands of sparing, a red-orange waxy keratoderma, and nail changes including thickened yellow brittle nails without pitting. Type 2 is the atypical adult form seen in 5% of cases with slow onset of ichthyotic leg lesions, keratoderma, and possibly alopecia. 
Type 3 is the classic juvenile PRP seen in 10% of all cases, whereas type 4 is the only circumscribed form of PRP, which is also the most common juvenile form, making up a quarter of all PRP cases. These kids with type 4 PRP present in clinic with symmetric, keratotic follicular papules in plaques on the extensor fingers, elbows, and knees. Type 5 PRP is the atypical juvenile form, making up 5% of cases and has sclerodermoid changes of the hands and feet in a more chronic course. And then there's type 6 PRP, which is a newly described HIV-associated form. Bravo, bravo. A third grader can memorize numbers and words, but tell me, why does this checkerboard remind me of Pteriasis ruba pilaris? Thankfully, you read all about PRP besides learning the six types, so you tell him that the checkerboard refers to the biopsy findings of alternating orthokeratosis and parakeratosis with hyper and hypogranulosis. This looks like a checkerboard since you have orthokeratosis without purple nuclei sitting above purple hypergranulosis, which then alternates with parakeratosis which has purple nuclei sitting above hypogranulosis. Again, Google some pictures and you'll be able to see what I mean. Maybe. Then you also tell Dr. G that besides this checkerboard pattern, patients can have follicular plugging. Ah, what else can have follicular plugging besides your pizza grease filled face? Since you're on the spot and you're not really sure, he helps you out by saying, Well, how about discoid lupus or lichen sclerosis? Anyways, getting back to the histology, checkerboard, ortho, and perikeratosis, and follicular plugging, what else do we see? So you tell him that you can see shoulder perikeratosis, which means that the perikeratosis tends to be present at the edges of the hair follicle orifice, along with irregular acanthosis. Remember that shoulder perikeratosis is also seen in seborrheic dermatitis. Alright, alright. Now tell me quick so I can get back to saving lives. What are some treatments for pityriasis ruba pilaris? You tell him that systemic retinoids are often used first line. Isotretinoin at 1 mg per kilogram per day can clear PRP in 6 to 9 months. Otherwise, acetretin at doses between 10 to 75 mg daily can also be useful but takes many months for clearance as well. Besides retinoids, methotrexate, TNF-alpha inhibitors, cyclosporin, azathioprine, and phototherapy have all been used successfully. It is important to remember that topical steroids are not that helpful, which makes sense because we don't see a lot of inflammatory cells on pathology. Don't fret now, there are plenty of jobs outside of the field of dermatology for simpletons such as yourself. I want to leave you all with a little pearl for rotations before we sum up parasoriasis in pityriasis rubra pilaris. Know what your acronyms for dermatology diseases mean. There are tons of acronyms in derm because the conditions are often named after histologic and clinical findings, which can really be a mouthful. We say CCCA rather than central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia for obvious reasons. We say PRP because pityriasis rubra pilaris can be a mouthful too. It's okay to use these acronyms in clinic and with patients, but always know what they stand for because your patients and your attendings will ask you. Okay, so let's do rapid fire on parasoriasis and PRP. Parasoriasis is broken down into two categories, one being small plaque parasoriasis, which has scaly patches less than 5 centimeters and basically no association with cutaneous lymphomas, and two being large plaque parasoriasis, 
which has scaly patches greater than 5 centimeters and may progress to mycosis fungoides in 10 to 35% of cases over 6 to 10 years. Both conditions may have pruritus and tend to show up on sun-protected areas and have nonspecific histology findings that show perikeratosis, mild acanthosis, mild spongiosis, and a lymphocytic infiltrate at the DEJ which may show clonality. Both small and large plaque parasoriasis can be treated with topical steroids and light therapy. Then we have pityriasis rubra pilaris. It classically presents with erythema and scale on the scalp and later progresses to several other classic features, including follicular keratotic papules that coalesce into large, red-orange scaly plaques with islands of sparing, a red-orange waxy keratoderma, and nail changes including thickened, yellow, brittle nails without pitting. There are six types of pityriasis rubra pilaris. Type 1 is the classic adult type making up 55% of cases and having a good prognosis, with 80% of cases resolving in 3 years. Type 2 PRP is the atypical adult form, seen in 5% of cases with a slow onset of ichthyotic leg lesions, keratoderma, and possibly alopecia. Type 3 is the classic juvenile PRP seen in 10% of cases, whereas type 4 is unique in that it's the only circumscribed form of PRP and may have a genetic component. Type 4 PRP is also the most common juvenile form, making up 25% of all PRP cases, with kids presenting with symmetric keratotic follicular papules and plaques on the extensor fingers, elbows, and knees. Type 5 PRP is the atypical juvenile form, making up 5% of cases and has sclerodermoid changes of the hands and feet in a chronic course whereas type 6 PRP is the newly described HIV-associated form with associated follicular spines, acne congloblata, and hydradenitis superativa. Alright, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.